committee will come to order. Uh, thank you for our guests being here today to testify. Uh, this is a serious and important uh, matter that we're going to take up this morning. And uh, before we get started here, though, uh, I'd like to take a moment to remember our friend and colleague, a former chairman of this committee, Senator Dick Luger, who passed away just a few days ago. Dick was a widely respected uh, senator in his home state of Indiana, as he was around the globe. He was a lifelong public servant. He exemplified the ideals that many of us strive for every day. I was fortunate to serve alongside of him from my very first days in this committee, and uh, I was able to benefit from his wisdom. At the top of the long list of his accomplishments in his work on is, is his work on nuclear nonproliferation in former Soviet countries. Our world is safer today because of his signature legislation, which was no easy feat. On behalf of all of us on the committee, I send my condolences to, the, to Senator Luger's wife and his family and the many people who, like us, were blessed to know and work with him. He was a true statesman and will always be remembered as such. Thank you, Dick, for your service. Turning to the topic at hand today, March tragically marked the eighth anniversary of a brutal civil conflict in Syria, a war characterized by the indiscriminate deployment of barrel bombs and chemical weapons against civilians, mass murder and forced displacement, targeted attacks against medical and humanitarian workers, and the wholesale destruction of critical infrastructure directed by the, by the brutal dictator Bashar al-Assad and his Russian and Iranian enablers. The humanitarian and economic toll has been devastating. More than half a million people have been killed. Over 13 million uh, Syrians require urgent, life-saving assistance. Millions of men, women, and children have been forced from their homes, including 5.7 million refugees. And nearly 3 million Syrian children, including 800,000 uh, child refugees, are out of school, and at least 10,000 of whom are unaccompanied, and all of whom are now vulnerable to trafficking, exploitation, and recruitment by armed groups, which we have all seen over the years. Notably, Assad's uh, atrocities have also given rise to dangerous extremist groups, including ISIS, which have capitalized on the chaos, unleashed further death and destruction, committed acts of genocide, they have manipulated aid, and further destabilized an already fragile region. These are people, not just, not just statistics, and they deserve better. These are men and women with families and children, the overwhelming majority of whom have been dragged into a conflict not of their own making, yet are forced to pay the ultimate price. Unfortunately, there is no easy path forward for them. A particular concern is the current uh, situation in Rukban along the Syrian uh, uh, Jordanian border, the Rukban camp houses 36,000 Syrians, mostly women and children. In recent weeks, the Assad regime and its Russian backers have blocked access and repeatedly refused requests by the UN to deliver much needed humanitarian assistance. The last UN aid delivery was in February, and supplies of food and basic necessities have been exhausted. With Ramadan fast approaching, I urge the Assad regime and its Russian backers to grant access to Rukban and beyond in line with UN Security Council Resolution 2449, thereby alleviating uh, wide-scale humanitarian suffering. The regional implications of this crisis cannot be underestimated. The unrelenting flow of re refugees into Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan 
was overwhelmed, has overwhelmed economic and security institutions and poses the risk of additional regional instability. And while it is easy to focus on conditions in the camps, it is important to note that roughly 90% of Syrian refugees live among hosting communities outside of camps. Refugees living in urban settings without access to legal employment or other assets face extreme difficulty in finding shelter and basic necessities. Moreover, they are often difficult to identify and therefore difficult to assist by agencies that wish to do so. This situation is simply not sustainable. It is in the U.S. interest to help Syrian refugees realize their desire for safe and voluntary returns to their homes as quickly as possible. All of this has resulted in the bill that would authorize sanctions against the Assad regime and its backers and hold these parties accountable for their human rights abuses and ongoing atrocities. This bill, the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act, I've worked on with ranking member Menendez and others, and both of us, indeed many of us, uh, want this bill to be passed as soon as possible. It was included in S-1, the first bill passed by uh, this Congress, uh, but has uh, become a high senate over in the House. As a result, the Caesar bill uh, will be taken up soon at a business meeting of this committee. The Syrian people need our help, and we should not delay this legislation any longer. The United States is the single largest humanitarian donor to the Syrian crisis, providing $9.5 billion since the beginning of the conflict. Now the questions are, how do we maintain the momentum of support for these populations, and what programs provide a path to durable solutions for the Syrian people? Such solutions will, will both address the grievances that perpetuated the conflict and prevent sowing the seeds of future conflict. With Syria's complex and deadly war entering its ninth year, the United States and other partners continue to work to ameliorate humanitarian conditions while seeking a more permanent, durable solution to the crisis. We remain committed to doing what we can to save lives while acknowledging that humanitarian assistance is just a Band-Aid. A political solution is long overdue. The United States stands with the Syrian people. We're happy to have this hearing today, and we're happy to have the distinguished uh, guests that we have uh, to talk about it uh, with us uh, here today. With that, uh, I'll uh, yield to, Mr. to Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me first uh, join you in honoring uh, the memory of the late Senator Dick Lewer. Uh, I was privileged to join the committee while uh, he was, uh, I believe, the chairman at the time. Uh, he was the ultimate statesman. Uh, at a time in which there is so much uh, lack of bipartisanship, he ran this committee with the comedy, with the courtesy, with the respect for all views that we should emulate uh, in our work today. And a time at which Russia is violating uh, the uh, INF Treaty and potentially leading us into a new nuclear arms race, uh, it was Dick Luger's work with Sam Nunn uh, who made a difference in the world in terms of reeling us back uh, from that arms race and creating a safer, more secure world for generations to come. And so uh, I am better off having known Dick Luger. Uh, I am reminded of his work, and I try to emulate some of what he does in the work that we do every day. I want to thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing to highlight devastating ongoing human suffering inside of Syria. 
For more than eight years, the Assad regime has waged an unrelenting war of brutality against the people of Syria, forcing millions to flee their homes, upending families and generations to come, destroying a once beautiful country, and enabling terrorists and nefarious actors to gain stronger footholds across the region. I had hoped, Mr. Chairman, that we could hear from some Syrians directly today, but instead let me at least acknowledge among us today members of the inspiring White Helmets, who to this day continue to risk their lives to save others and to tell the story of Assad's murderous campaign. Raid Salah is in town to receive a well-deserved award from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and I ask that a statement from the group be submitted for the record. And I thank them for being here uh, today with us. While we may talk of the defeat of the caliphate of ISIS, violence continues to rage in Syria's countryside and villages. Capitalizing on an incoherent policy from the United States and fatigue from the international community, the Assad regime and its Russian and Iranian facilitators of war crimes killed more than 100 people in February in Idlib alone. Nearly half of them were children. Facing Assad's barrel bombs and starvation campaign, as well as horrific violence from terrorist organizations, some 6.2 million are displaced from their homes within the country, many lacking access to adequate food and basic health care. More than 2 million children are out of school, risking a lost generation. Five million have fled to neighboring Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and Iraq, who have shown an extraordinary openness. The impacts of this crisis, however, are not confined to the region. Nobody can forget the devastating images of dead Syrian children washing up on the shores of Greece, nor the hundreds who have drowned trying to cross the Mediterranean. While some governments have shown extraordinary compassion in welcoming the influx of refugees, this crisis has also fueled existing xenophobic nationalistic voices seeking to upend the very foundational values and institutions that shaped the past half century. And as Syrians bear the burden, the Kremlin wins on two fronts. The refugee <coughs> crisis contributes to the political splintering of Europe, and it is able to maintain a foothold in the Middle East through its war criminal patron in Damascus. During the past eight years of war, the international community has failed Syria, failed to resolve the conflict, protect civilians from gross violations of the Geneva Conventions and the laws of armed conflict, and ensure durable solutions for refugees. Instead of United States historical leadership in response to this kind of suffering, in 2018, President Trump froze and then terminated stabilization assistance in northeastern Syria and announced the withdrawal of U.S. troops by tweet, shocking both our local partners and deployed allies. Since then, erratic policy pronouncements have created uncertainty about U.S. strategy, timeline, intentions, and reliability. Rather than providing resources to countries hosting Syrian refugees, President Trump's proposed budget, an unprecedented cut of over 30% in humanitarian aid, is something that luckily Congress rejected. But the proposal was reckless, dangerous, and a rejection of American values and global leadership. There are, however, steps we can take to address this crisis. At a minimum, the administration should work to ensure humanitarian access to men, women, and children in need and to secure adequate funding for the humanitarian response. I'm glad to hear in your comments, Mr. Chairman, that we will move the Caesar Civilian, uh, Serious Civilian Protection Act soon as a standalone bill. Uh, I know that Democrats stand ready uh, to cast a vote uh, for the bill and send it directly to the President's desk as it has already passed the House of Representatives. And here at home, we must lead by example. 
For decades, the U.S. government was both an offer and a champion of refugee protection principles globally. Sadly, the administration has slammed the door on Syrian refugees. In 2016, of the five million around the world, the United States welcomed over 12,587 of the most vulnerable Syrian refugees, women, children, the sick, and the elderly. In 2018, the Trump administration barred the door, admitting just 62 Syrian refugees. 62. It appears the administration is waging a deliberate campaign to send a message that the United States is no longer that shining beacon for those fleeing oppression, seeking asylum, and a better life. The United States has an ability to be a force for good and restore our international standing. We must stand by our partners who have fought alongside us. We must push back against those who would seek to exploit a vacuum of leadership and threaten our interests. And doing that requires sustained support for the people of Syria and our allies. We thank our witnesses for the work that they have been doing, for their continued efforts to both expose the devastating crisis and marshal support, and we look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Senator Menendez. I, too, want to uh, note that we have the uh, uh, two representatives of the White Helmets here today. Their, uh, their network of over 3,000 people has saved uh, almost 100,000 lives, and it's to be uh, uh, noted and uh, greatly appreciated. Their courageous work on the ground in Syria while being targeted by Assad and his Russian backers is to communicate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, now we're going to turn to uh, our witnesses, and uh, I want to start with uh, Mr. Ben Stiller, who is an actor, director, producer, and writer with a career spanning over 30 years. Mr. Stiller is also a committed advocate and humanitarian supporting the work of UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, since 2016. Mr. Stiller was appointed Goodwill Ambassador in 2018 and has traveled around the world uh, to meet with uh, refugees. Uh, Mr. Stiller, we're honored to hear from you. Thank you. Um, it's, it's great to be here in person with all of you. I watch you all on television all the time. <laughs> You all look much taller in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we watch you at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Chairman Reich, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, I am pleased to be here today in my capacity as a goodwill ambassador for UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, to, to, excuse me, to discuss the ongoing needs of Syrian refugees and their host communities. As you've noted, last month saw the eighth anniversary of the Syrian conflict. In 2016, deciding that I didn't want to just keep watching the news of the conflict, but that I wanted to do something, I called UNHCR, which is mandated to care for refugees worldwide. Since then, I've had the opportunity to travel with them to meet Syrian refugees in Jordan, in Berlin, and recently in Lebanon. I've also traveled to Guatemala to meet individuals fleeing horrific violence in our own hemisphere. In my time with UNHCR, I've been incredibly impressed by their work. With a staff of nearly 17,000, 90% 90 90 of whom are located in the field. UNHCR works tirelessly to assist the world's most vulnerable. Since the start of the Syrian crisis, this committee has remained steadfast in its commitment to the protection and assistance of Syrian refugees and internally displaced persons, as well as to the countries hosting these refugees. We thank you for that leadership and support. As an American, I'm also proud that the United States continues to be UNHCR's largest donor and that our State Department remains a steadfast partner. 
In many parts of the world, the term refugee has unfortunately become politicized, despite the fact that refugees are real people with real stories, stories that are some of the most frightening and traumatic I've heard, especially as a father. I've tried to imagine how I would feel if caught in the middle of conflict and unable to protect my children, if my son was at risk of forced recruitment or my daughter at risk of unimaginable violence. Honestly, for me, it's not something I want to think about. If any of us were to take a moment to really consider this, we would have a tiny sense of what everyday life is like for millions of people around the world. Getting a chance to meet some of these people and hear their stories firsthand has been a privilege. Immediately, it becomes clear what we all have in common. Though we come from different cultures and totally different worlds, we all want the same things, to provide a good environment for our kids to grow up in, to laugh and share experiences with family and friends, to see our children grow up and achieve their dreams. These are things we all want no matter who or where we are. And every time I leave and say goodbye, I'm aware that but for being born in a different country, it could well be me and not them sitting in a small, cold, makeshift shelter and not being able to do any of these things. These people have lost everything. This reality was all too clear last month when I was in Lebanon and I had the opportunity to meet a young Syrian family, Binana, her husband, Rayed, and their four beautiful children. They've lived in Lebanon as refugees for eight years now and have desperately struggled, constantly moving and constantly looking for work. Rayed has resorted to trying to sell his kidney on Facebook. And last year, when Binana was pregnant with her youngest child, a friend suggested she sell her baby to help make ends meet. Binana didn't do this, but the suggestion sheds light on the family's desperate circumstances. Their children, including amazing eight-year-old twins Yazan, a boy, and Razan, a girl. Uh, these, these two kids were very special, and uh, I was very affected by Yazan's courage. He, uh, just a, a very sweet boy, he overheard his parents talking about um, their struggles, and he offered to help by uh, selling vegetables on the street for income for the family. And he's just a very little, little kid, um, and they, his parents didn't want him to work, but uh, he insisted, telling them that it was better than begging. And his father, Ryad, explained that Yazan is an excellent salesman. And so I asked him, I said, what makes you such a good salesman? And he said he's good at selling because he's so cute. <laughs> um, and while his response was funny and it made me smile, uh, the fact that he's working as a young child, missing out on school, and often going to bed hungry is uh, a reality that's all too common for refugee children. And this family receives cash and assistance, uh, food assistance, through UNHCR, but it just isn't enough for them. The overwhelming majority of Syrian refugees have always been and still remain in the countries bordering their homeland. And while these are mostly middle-income countries, the sheer size of the refugee population and the fragile nature of the, of the region's economic and political situation puts an enormous strain on the hosting countries. Uh, the, the majority of Syrian refugees want to go home one day, but most don't believe that such return is possible right now. They fear for the security of their families, as well as the prospect of military conscript conscription, uh, lack of documents, and lack of basic services, or just for their livelihoods there. Uh, in Lebanon, I heard these exact concerns firsthand. UNHCR is working with partners to address these obstacles. When the time is right, UNHCR will be there to support organized, large-scale repatriation efforts, as it has done in many parts of the world. Some self-organized returns are already happening, these families have made a highly personal decision to go home, and UNHCR respects and supports that decision. 
UNHCR is present at points of departure in host countries to ensure that returns are voluntary and to provide advice on documentation and other key issues. But in order to fully assist those who return and to monitor conditions, UNHCR and other humanitarian agencies need unhindered access to areas of return inside Syria. While access is slowly improving, it is far from being widespread or systemic. Because it's clear that large-scale return will take time, we should expect a significant Syrian refugee population outside of Syria for the foreseeable future. In the meantime, Syrian refugees have told us what they need, and we should listen to them. They need education for their children and the ability to work and provide for their families. They don't want to be dependent on aid and to sit idly for years. Refugees have the potential to contribute to the economic and sociocultural lives of their new communities, whether those communities are in neighboring host countries, in resettlement countries, or ultimately back in their home countries where they can help to rebuild after years of conflict. We therefore need to provide the host countries with long-term structural support. We need to help them ensure that their health services, education systems, and livelihood opportunities are available to refugees, and also that the needs of their own citizens are addressed so that both groups are able to thrive. Done smartly, humanitarian aid and development aid, not only in the Middle East but in Africa, Central America, and elsewhere, can help address root causes in countries of origin, provide needed support to transit and destination countries, and help stabilize fragile regions of the world. The United States has been the most generous donor to many humanitarian crises, including the Syria situation, and I urge you to maintain this generosity. Eight years into the crisis, we must not look away. We cannot let Syrian families go deeper into destitution and cannot let their children be part of a lost generation. We need to ensure that these families can live in dignity and look to the future with hope. We need to ensure that these kids, like my kids and your kids, can have a childhood and achieve their dreams. Ultimately, we need to help create the conditions that will allow the majority of Syrian refugees to return home when the time is right, as they just so desperately want to do. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Stiller. We appreciate your testimony in that regard, and thank you for your commitment uh, to this uh, cause. Uh, next, we're going to turn to uh, the Right Honorable David Millibrand. Mr. Millibrand is President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, where he oversees the agency's humanitarian relief opera operations in more than 40 war-affected war countries. From 2000 to 2010, from 2007 to 2010, he was the seventh 74th Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs of the United Kingdom, driving advancements in human rights and represented, representing the United Kingdom throughout the world. Thank you for being with us today, Mr. Brand, and uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Chairman Rich, uh, Senator Menendez, distinguished senators. Thank you all for your uh, leadership at this critical time in, in international affairs. I, I want to particularly applaud your determination to hold this hearing to look at the humanitarian consequences of the war in Syria, because our experience of the last eight years is that far too often the danger that untended humanitarian crisis leads to geopolitical instability is not sufficiently appreciated, and the willingness of this committee to do so seems to me to be very important. I'm conscious of the need to get on to the questions, and so I won't repeat things that others have said, but let me make a few introductory remarks. I had the privilege of testifying before this committee in 2015 and in 2017, when the inhumanity of the Syrian conflict was a major news story. Today, Syria is mainly out of the news, but the suffering of well over half of the Syrian population, the population numbered about 25 million in 2011, well over half have been affected uh, by the war. Uh, the suffer their suffering has not abated. 
in the last 24 hours, bombing raids in the northwest of Syria by the government of Syria and Russian forces have caused death and destruction. I got in touch with our team on the ground uh, this morning. They reported to me that today there have already been 50 air raids and attacks. Uh, we know that yesterday there were at least 20 aerial attacks, including, or, uh, and in addition, 22 using barrel bombs. Our evidence is that 3,500 have been displaced even in the last 36 hours. I want to pay tribute to Ben Stiller and our partners at UNHCR, but I also want to recognize the over 2,000 International Rescue Committee staff on the ground in Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq. In 2018, in significant part thanks to the aid that America was willing to provide, we were able to offer emergency aid and long-term services to one and a quarter million uprooted Syrians and their hosts in neighboring states. My testimony, my written testimony, focuses on four humanitarian priorities. First, the war that is continuing in two large chunks of Syrian territory, in the northwest and in the northeast. You know well that the politics and the military balance in both areas is complex, but over four million people live in those areas. Cross-border aid keeps them alive, but the State Department yesterday described the situation of these people as dire. My written testimony gives details, including of those who used to live in Baguz under ISIS rule and are now in the Al-Hol camp where we are working. It is a high priority to prevent humanitarian meltdown as the government of Syria and their Russian and Iranian allies seek to retake ground in the northwest and northeast of the country. Second, as all the speakers have so far said, the eight years of war have taken their toll on the refugees in neighboring states. For too many of these people, Life is a miserable existence. Poverty, early marriage, inadequate health and education are the norm. The host countries have their own challenges and are delivering a global public good in providing sanctuary to these people. They need support, not lip service, to be able to continue to do so. Third, we hear from refugees that they are scared to return to Syria, notably scared of conscription into the Assad army and of persecution, but also scared about the destruction that has been wrought on their homes and businesses. The primacy of the multilateral UN-led diplomatic process has been to a large extent displaced in the last three years by a Russia-Iran-Turkey troika. However, a sustainable peace can only be built with full international as well as national engagement, and that takes sustained diplomatic muscle. Fourth, the most vulnerable refugees, abused women, victims of torture, those with medical conditions, depend for their future on resettlement to third countries. As Senator Menendez said, the U.S. has historically led the way. He rightly drew attention to the fact that in fiscal year 16, only 62 Syrians were allowed into the country. The figure for this fiscal year so far is 250. I want to draw attention to the fact that, albeit with reduced numbers, the administration has committed to admit about 9,000 refugees for resettlement from the Middle East alone. But so far, nearly seven months into the fiscal year, they have achieved less than 7% of that regional target and it seems to me worthy of great attention to make sure that they do actually hit their own target in the course of the rest of this fiscal year. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Syria, over the last eight years, has become a poster child for what I call an age of impunity, when the laws of war are considered optional, civilians are fair game, aid workers are seen as unfortunate collateral, and diplomacy is toothless. I thank you and the members of the United States Senate for the opportunity to provide the International Rescue Committee's perspective on this defining humanitarian challenge. I look forward to addressing your, conversations, your, your questions and to a, an important conversation. Thank you very much indeed.
Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Millibrand, for your testimony, and also thank you uh, for your commitment to this cause. Uh, we're going to do a, a five-minute round. I'm going to start uh, with a single question to uh, uh, Mr. Millibrand, if you would. USAID's Office of the Inspector General is charged with rooting out waste, fraud, and abuse in U.S. foreign assistance. According to the G Inspector General, it appears even life-saving humanitarian assistance to Syrians is not immune uh, to corruption. I think uh, the corruption issue around the world is uh, largely unknown to Americans, uh, but it, it is ubiquitous, as we all know, that, uh, that work around the world. Could you please discuss uh, for a minute why it's so important to institute and enforce zero-tolerance policies when it comes to corruption in humanitarian assistance? Thanks very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I'm glad you've raised that. I think there are three uh, reasons that uh, I would uh, cite. The first is it's absolutely vital to maintain the confidence of taxpayers that their international aid is going to the people who need it, not being diverted to people who want to profit from it. And I know from my own experience in political life that it's absolutely essential to ensure that principles of value for money, of cost effectiveness as well as cost efficiency, are built in from the beginning in the way programs are organized and delivered. Secondly, I'm a very strong believer that it's important to have a culture of zero tolerance because that means you are preventing fraud as well as taking defensive measures to investigate and tackle it. Uh, we, uh, for ourselves, but I know that other NGOs uh, do the same, do extensive risk analysis to make sure that we are uh, working in ways that protect taxpayers' money. We are vigilant in following through where aid reaches. And perhaps of most interest to the committee, we use the views of beneficiaries themselves as an early warning system when things are going wrong. Because, of course, the first people to know that the aid isn't going where it needs to is from people who are meant to be getting it. Uh, that seems to me to be uh, essential. The third uh, element of this that I think is um, very important indeed is obviously to ensure that the NGO community with the multilateral agencies and the donors work in an efficient and effective way to tackle that fraud and abuse. Uh, one element of this is that NGOs have to fund this for themselves. We don't really get funded by our multilateral donors to be able to do this. And I can speak for my own organization. We're now having to invest significant sums of money that we raise ourselves to ensure that we meet the higher standards, always vigilant that in our recruitment, in our practices, we're able to meet the higher standards. Thank you so much. I appreciate that answer. Senator Menendez. <clears throat> Uh, thank you both for your testimony and your commitment. Um, Mr. Millibrand, you present a disturbing, uh, uh, rather gloomy uh, picture, uh, one which not only do I believe we have an op uh, a situation where we can lose a generation of Syrians, but we will buy ourselves in the international community a generation of problems, uh, problems that will go to unsettling what's happening in Europe, problems that lead to people who are despaired, who will then be turned and proselytized to uh, the fights uh, that we are presently having against terrorism. This calls for our response, not only in a humanitarian context, but in our own national interest and in our own national security interest. Let me ask you, uh, the international community sends much of its humanitarian aid uh, from Turkey and other frontline states to vulnerable citizens uh, inside Syria. 
Last year, the UN Security Council authorized only a one-year extension of cross-border aid deliveries to Syria if humanitarian organizations lose cross-border access and are only able to program for Damascus. How is that going to affect the Syrian humanitarian response? Thanks very much for the question. I think the most chilling statistic that I saw in preparing for this hearing was that when it comes to cross-line aid, that means aid that's going from a government of Syria-controlled part of the country into a rebel-held part of the country, only 3% of aid agencies' applications to do that cross-line aid are accepted. That gives you an indication of the priority for cross-border aid that's going from Turkey or from uh, Iraq or uh, from Jordan to reach people in need. Uh, the UN figures are that about 3 million people depend on that cross-border aid. And we know from our own staff who are in areas that were previously uh, under rebel-held control where we were delivering cross-border aid. I'm thinking particularly about the southwest of the country, Daraa, where the Syrian civil war started and where we were the main healthcare provider. Now that the Syrian government has taken over, uh, those services have been lost. And so you're immediately seeing that for the people in the northwest and the northeast of the country still in rebel-held areas, cross-border aid is literally a lifeline. Uh, three million people in total depend on cross-border aid, and they depend on a multilateral coordination mechanism through the United Nations. There's a, a Syria response plan and a regional response plan covering uh, the neighbors that's delivered in a coordinated and organized way. So cross-border aid is a lifeline. And obviously, in the absence of cross-border aid, it increases the Assad regime's ability to leverage assistance only to the areas where supporters of the regime reside. Is that a fair statement? Yes, I think that the experience in Ghouta, as well as in the Southwest and uh, Daraa, bears that out. Um, let me ask you, uh, what message does the administration's slashing of refugee admissions to 30,000 this year sent to countries such as Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, who are already hosting millions of Syrian refugees. I worry that when we lead by example, we can get other countries and urge other countries to perform their fair share. But when we fail to do so, we lose the ability to advocate for others to do so. And in the case of Syrian refugees, they are the most vetted of anyone who comes to the United States. They go through the most vigorous background checks of anyone who comes to the United States. And we take only among the most vulnerable women, children, those who are highly infirmed. And so it seems to me that we need to be the, the leader in order to get other nations in the world to continue to join in the responsibility. What, what do you think is the effect of that? I think the best way of answering that is to say the last time I was in Jordan, I was told by a very senior member of the Jordanian government that there was a very clear message, which is that they, were, they felt like they were, quote-unquote, on their own. And that is the danger that uh, I see in this. We know that in 2016, uh, when the then administration raised the number of refugees who were being allowed to come into the country, other countries around the world increased their refugee resettlement slots by about 30%. And so you saw for the first time an uptick in the number of refugee resettlement slots uh, around the world. The parallel or the concomitant is that when the US as the global leader in refugee resettlement reduces its numbers, that also acts as a disincentive around the world. There's a final point I just want to make. I think you're absolutely right to stress the need for effective security vetting. I've 
been in this job for five years, and I'm the first to say we want there to be effective security vetting of everyone coming into the country. You're right that refugee is tougher to arrive in the United States as a refugee than through any other route. The administration, perfectly within its rights, when it came in, said it wanted to review the vetting system, and it now has a vetting system that it says is up to scratch. And so I think in those circumstances, there is no reason why the most vulnerable shouldn't be allowed in, in numbers that are on a par with the kind of global scale of the problem that we face. Thank you very much. Senator Paul. Thank you both for your work in trying to help these, uh, this terrible humanitarian disaster. I think when we look at it, uh, it's easy just to talk about what we should do to help the refugees, but we also should think about what caused this to begin with. Um, worldwide, it's either a natural disaster, you know, lack of food, lack of water, or war. Uh, more often than not, it's both, both war and, you know, naturally uh, 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 difficult land to harvest crops from. But if we don't understand that war causes refugee crisis and war causes humanitarian crisis, we're not getting anywhere. And there really does need to be a discussion of how do we get here. To me, there's a certain degree of irony that we, we and our allies and Qatar and Saudi Arabia and UAA we sent tons, thousands of tons of weapons into Syria. And then after the, the aftermath of all of these weapons coming together in this clash of civil war, now that we're going to be asked to pay for the humanitarian disaster as well. Maybe we should try to have you know, less involvement in these civil wars, less escalation of these civil wars. ISIS, we had to go back in and fight ISIS. Where did ISIS come from? The chaos of this civil war, you know? Uh, terrorism breeds in, in chaos. And so maybe we really need to rethink when we get involved in these civil wars and whether our involvement is, is good or bad. People say, well, we wouldn't have gotten involved. Assad would have won the war. Yeah, he probably would have won the war in the first six months. Would there have been oppression? Yes, there would have been oppression. But do you think that's worse somehow than the millions of people that are displaced and the hundreds of thousands of people that have been killed in this? And these are things we should think through. My question to Mr. Stiller is, you said that you require, in order to meet the humanitarian needs, you require unhindered access. Do you think more sanctions on Syria will lead to less hindered access, or do you think more sanctions might actually lead to more hindered access to develop uh, humanitarian aid. I won't uh, venture to speculate on sanctions in my role as a witness to the humanitarian plight that I've seen for UNHCR. Um, I think it's obviously an incredibly complicated political situation. Um, and what I would speak to with UNHCR and, uh, and to what International Rescue Committee is doing is it's about figuring out the best way to have access within Syria uh, to allow a path for these people to go home, to have a safe place for them to go back home. So it's a very complicated issue. Right. I don't do it for a living, uh, but I would say that it's, uh, when you see the face of it in person, and I agree with you, these root causes have to be addressed. I think that's the key. But when you see the face of it in person and what's going on there now, I think it's, it's just very important that we do everything we can to help. Yeah, and I think the thing is is that uh, some see sanctions as war by another name. It's a softer form of war, but it's the war goes on. It's not acknowledging that basically the war is over and that somehow the tide is going to change and Assad will be defeated by sanctions. Now, I don't think he will be defeated by sanctions. I think the humanitarian crisis continues and actually probably grows from not sending aid in and putting sanctions on people who would send aid in. So I, I think we really do need to rethink this. Sanctions is not going to change the outcome of the war in there, but I think it will change the ability for the country to recover. 
you know, I'm no fan of Assad. I'm not glad that he won the war, but the war is largely over. There still is uh, pockets of resistance in different places, but the war is largely over. And if we want to correct the humanitarian crisis, forbidding trade with Syria is probably not a good way. Embargoes uh, lead to starvation. You know, there was an embargo on Japan before the war, embargoes on Germany. They didn't prevent the war. They actually may have, have brought the war on as well. So I think we ought to rethink what we're doing as far as how we treat this. There's one thing to give money and to feed people, and that's admirable. Um, but it's another to uh, continue the war and think that somehow we're going to change the outcome. That's all I have. Thanks. Thank you, Senator. Senator Cardin. Well, let me uh, thank first both of our witnesses. Mr. Stiller, you're, you're a face that can get significant support in this country and around the world on these issues. So I thank you for taking your time uh, for this extremely important humanitarian need. And Mr. Millibrand, your reputation and your leadership has been indispensable. Uh, let me just respond very quickly to uh, Senator Paul. For the people of Syria, whether you call it a war or not, there's not peace. And the circumstances on the ground are extremely dangerous for the population in Syria. And we can talk about all the different problems we have, including a final resolution for a government that represents all the people of Syria, which is desperately needed. Uh, we can also talk about the need for access uh, for humanitarian assistance, which is what this hearing is about and how we deal with refugees. But let, I, yesterday I attended, uh, or Monday I attended the meeting of the U.S. Uh, Holocaust Memorial and museum, and the White Helmets were honored the night before, and we congratulate you. It's incredible inspiration to all of us, the, the work that, that you do. But there's an exhibit there on Syria, the, the eight years of atrocities, and I encourage as many of our colleagues to see that exhibit as, as they can, because the, what the museum is about is never again. It's a memorial to the victims, but it's also our commitment of never again and we're seeing it over and over again. So, Mr. Millibrand, you mentioned the point. Your final summary was pretty sobering, and I think you'll find many of us that agree with you of the failures in so many different areas. But let me just mention one of the issues you mentioned, impunity in Syria. If it's never again, those who have committed these atrocities have to be held accountable. Uh, we included, uh, uh, working with Senator Rubio, legislation I authored dealing with the Syrian war crimes accountability. It, it's the law of our land. Now, the, this administration has defunded that effort in, in the budget. But if we don't hold accountable those who commit atrocities, we're going to see this movie again. And uh, we, we've got to take steps to make sure that doesn't happen. And I know this hearing is focused on the humanitarian needs. But I would just urge us all to recognize that we have a responsibility to humanity that those who are responsible for these atrocities are held accountable. I, I want to drill down a little bit on the point that Senator Menendez mentioned about U.S. leadership. Because U.S. leadership is so vitally important, and you had a chance to comment in regards to the Syrian refugee numbers here in the United States. But it goes beyond that. Take a look at the administration's budgets on humanitarian aid and cutting aid in so many of those areas. Look at our immigration policies generally. 
Look at the rise globally of nationalism, anti-migrants, so that when we look at the politics within the region of Syria, it's becoming more and more challenging for the neighboring countries to accept and maintain their commitment to refugees because of the politics, global politics, uh, of refugees. So, Mr. Milgren, I just would give you another opportunity. Uh, to, uh, this committee has historically taken a very strong position for the U.S. leadership on dealing with vulnerable populations. And we are concerned that the U.S. leadership is not where it needs to be today as we ask other countries to do things and keep keeping borders open with Syria and maintain refugee camps and allow humanitarian aid, which is a real burden to their own political stability in their own country. Where we need to be, the, the Western powers, to show by example, yes, the refugee numbers are critically important, and our numbers to hit the, we, to be so far behind a very, very modest number, when you look at the numbers in the surrounding countries of Syria and the numbers that they have and the percentage of their population, we need to show leadership. So i just give you an opportunity to, to respond to that as to the, how this is affecting your ability to carry out your mission. Well, thank you very much. I think the, the age of impunity that I referred to is driven by two things. One is a crisis of diplomacy. And to speak to Senator Paul's very important point, the roots of these refugee crises are in civil wars. And the tools of diplomacy for wars between states are not well suited to the crises that exist within states. And so the tools of diplomacy have to be reinvented for a civil war situation rather than an interstate conflict. Secondly, though, the crisis of accountability that you uh, referred to speaks directly to the fact that essentially war crimes, and in many cases literally war crimes, are not investigated. And that is the absolute foundation for this. The U we all know that the UN Security Council has been blocked from effective investigation of crimes inside Syria. It's been left to NGOs, some of them based in Germany, actually, who've done an outstanding job in highlighting particular individuals who've been uh, the focus of this. The US has shown leadership in respect of Magnitsky Act in a different context where it's targeted particular individuals. And I think that uh, from my own experience, but also from what I see now around the world, uh, US leadership provides leverage. When you give more aid, you're then in a stronger position to say to the Gulf countries, they've got to step up. When you expand your refugee resettlement numbers, you're in a better position to say to the European Union, you've got to step up as well. And then perhaps to tread into more difficult uh, territory, when the US embraces the notion that civilian casualties need proper inve independent investigation, it also sends a very important message about what we really mean by accountable government and by liberal democratic principles. And it seems to me that's the uh, message that goes out, that uh, when you set an example, you get leverage. And I, I think that's where, what we see. And when that uh, example is not set, I'm afraid it incentivizes the worst of behavior rather than the best. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you to both of you for your time and testimony today. Mr. Miliband, um, we met. Uh, thank you for the work that you do through IRC. We met with uh, some individuals from the office in Denver. Thank you very much uh, for the work and certainly the work that takes place in Colorado as well. Um, it, I was here, and I believe it was, may have been the 2015 hearing that you testified um, to this committee for. Uh, you talked at the time about 
uh, the, the internally displaced, uh, not just in Syria, but throughout the region. He talked at the time about uh, the, the overall global refugee situation being greater than any point since I believe at that time it was World War II. Could you talk perhaps today, in this context in 2019, what's different about the refugee situation either in Syria specifically or globally than it was in 2015 and how that difference has occurred? Thank you very much, Senator. And I, I, I hope I can say that um, the fact that you went to meet refugees who'd been resettled in Colorado and Denver sends an incredibly important message. And I, I think it was a message of humanity that really resonated. So on behalf of my, my team, I really want to thank you. Directly, I think uh, three things have changed. First of all, there are more refugees and internally displaced than there were in 2015. We're now up to 68.5 million in total, 28.5 million refugees and asylum seekers who've crossed borders, 40 million uh, internally um, displaced. Uh, secondly, the political uh, context in which many of them find themselves has become more complicated. In 2015, we weren't talking about 800,000 people under the rule of Boko Haram in northeast Nigeria. We weren't talking uh, about so-called HTS, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in the northwest of uh, Syria. So the, the uh, localized politics and the danger of radicalization, uh, I think, has become greater. Thirdly, um, the refugee situation has uh, expanded geographically. Just to speak for our own agency, we've had to deploy to Bangladesh because 700,000 Rohingya Muslims were driven out of Myanmar. Uh, we've had to deploy into uh, Colombia because of the very significant number of, of displaced people coming out of Venezuela. So that's the third aspect of this, that the geographical spread has, has grown too. Thank you. And, and to either one of you, Mr. Stiller, perhaps you talked about going to uh, Jordan and visiting uh, refugees in Jordan. Um, I think we've all shared a very similar experience when you uh, travel through Amman and uh, the people you travel with point out which settlement or location occurred during which conflict. And you can see the refugees from this era and that era and the challenge they face and the education challenges they face. And then, of course, you talk to um, somebody in Jordan and they talk about how this market here used to be a Jordanian market, but uh, this group of refugees has now displaced the local business people and have now uh, taken over that and now they're Jordanians or whatever country it is that are out of work and so the, the conflict that, that creates within the country uh, can be immense uh, from an education standpoint, from a resource standpoint, from just uh, people who feel that perhaps uh, they were displaced uh, from work that they were doing prior to that because of a, a, a refugee um, uh, policy. Can you talk about what you saw in, in, uh, in Jordan and what you see and how we can better adjust our policies to impact education resource needs yeah, in thank, that conflict? Yes, thank you for the question. Um, yeah, I've seen that too. Uh, the, the reality of this huge influx of refugees coming into these very small countries, uh, neighboring Syria and Iraq, um, uh, Jordan, uh, is such a, a small population and the percentage per capita of refugees coming in is huge and it just overwhelms their infrastructure and their ability to provide for them. And at the same time, refugees in these countries really don't have many rights and the ability to work freely. And it's different in different countries. But um, I think uh, one of the, the, the things that I saw were children being forced to work because their parents couldn't work. Uh, when I was in Jordan, I went to the Azraq camp, which is a, a, a huge camp where uh, I think it's 30 or 40,000 
refugees are, where they have no ability to work at all. So they have to just form a community and be able to try to be productive as they wait for their lives to continue. And then the vast majority that are outside the camps are trying to make ends meet, and a lot of the times the parents can't work. So uh, I met a, a child uh, named Khalil who was 13 years old, one of, I think, six or seven kids in a family, and his, they had come from Aleppo, and they had been there for uh, about three or four years, and his father couldn't work due to medical issues. So this, this boy, Khalil, similar to the boy I was talking about, Yazan, uh, had to work at an auto body shop for about 12 to 14 hours a day. He's 13 years old. And uh, very uh, war-weary face, I would say, beautiful green eyes. I remember him very well, he, and he said, I said to him, uh, Boy, you're 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 a you're a very uh, you're you work very hard for a young boy. And he said, "I'm not a boy. I'm a man." <laughs> and uh, I think that's the reality. He's missing out on his education. He's uh, it's a whole generation of young Syrians who are not having any access to education. And the host countries are are overwhelmed. I, I had a chance to meet the king and the queen in Jordan when I was there, and they talked about the huge pull it has on their infrastructure. So uh, I think it's it's very important to be able to help these host countries so that they can provide for their own citizens and provide for the influx of refugees. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Sheehan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both very much for being here today and for what you're doing to try and address what is a horrific crisis that the world has not paid enough attention to. Mr. Miliband, last summer I had the opportunity to travel in northeast Syria. Um, Senator Graham and I spent a day there, and we were in Mambij village. What we saw was a, a largely stable area where refugees were coming back. ISIS had been defeated. Um, our troops there had made a huge difference in providing reassurance to um, the people of that part of Syria that they, they were not going to see a resurgence of ISIS or other forces that would harm them. Sadly, not later in the year, we saw the president tweet and the situation change in northeast Syria. Can you talk about how important it is for U.S. presence in um, that part of Syria, especially given, as you point out, the deteriorating multilateral negotiation situation where talks have not moved forward, and as we look at um, the presence of Iran and Russia and what happens next, how important it is for the United States in giving us the leverage that you talk about. Thanks very much. I mean, obviously, we're a humanitarian organization, and we're careful about the boundaries between humanitarian right. policy and military policy. What I can report to you is that in our judgment, there's no question that the U.S. presence is a force for stability in that part of Syria. I can report that to you as an evidential point rather than as an opinion of sure. military uh, strategy. It's a precarious situation because you've got the government of Syria, you've got the Turks from the north, uh, you have the danger of a resurgence of ISIS, you've got Russians who've uh, encroached there and met their American match uh, last year. And our plea is that every single political and military decision has the humanitarian component built in. And the danger, obviously, is that any change in that precarious and fragile military balance sets off a chain reaction that has devastating humanitarian consequences, most obviously a new flow of refugees or displaced people, or uh, the danger of radicalization and a resurgence of some kind of organized uh, ISIS, Daesh uh, cell 
uh, there. And uh, I think if you do build in that humanitarian component, you'd speak to the stability that is essential to try and preserve. And how concerned are you about Turkey's incursion into that part of Syria if the United, when the United States troops are completely gone and potential for further disruption and humanitarian um, to further to make a difficult situation even worse if yeah. that happens? I, mean, I think the, first, the, the most important thing to say is that in thinking about any part of this complicated jigsaw, we recognize other parts. So I, I promise I'll come to the point of uh, what happens if a Turkish area is established. But I think one has to preface that by saying Turkey has 3.7 million Syrian refugees mm -hmm. in the country. The population is 80 million. It's obviously a much richer country than Jordan or Lebanon. It's got greater capacity to cope. Uh, it's done a genuinely heroic uh, service. It is, and I certainly agree with that. And so I, I think it's important to put that on the record. Equally, it's important to say that for a variety of uh, reasons, uh, when uh, inside Turkey, uh, Tur the Turkish state and its organizations deal with all the refugees there, it's not international NGOs in the main who are providing the uh, support. And we know that uh, when Turkish um, authorities established in other parts of Syria, there isn't a place for the international NGOs. So the most obvious and direct consequence of the uh, development that you describe would be that international NGOs would no longer be playing the role that they have been in the past. Certainly we have health centers at Talabad and elsewhere in uh, the uh, northwest, or northeast of the country, and they would no longer be uh, there. And so that speaks to this very fragile political, military, but also humanitarian standoff that exists. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Stiller, you talked in your opening statement about the role that UNHCR has been critical in playing to provide assistance both inside Syria and where refugees have fled. Um, can you talk about what you saw and what UNHCR sees as the most pressing needs of the refugees in the areas that you visited? Uh, yeah, thank you for that question. I, um, I mean, when you go there, the first thing that, that you experience is people living in extreme poverty. And uh, these are not people who came there necessarily in extreme poverty. I mean, I think it's really important to remember that nobody chooses to be a refugee. And uh, a refugee is not some poor, wandering person who decided to leave their country. Refugees are people who were forced to leave due to persecution. So they're doctors, lawyers, farmers, uh, cab drivers. Uh, they're, they're regular people who literally had their, their house was bombed and they had to leave. So that reality uh, is then, you know, they're, they're, they're dealing with the fact that they can't work, they don't have the right to work, so they're living in very, very tough conditions. And I think that's one of the, the biggest issues uh, that uh, UNHCR deals with is uh, trying to help these people make ends meet and just be able to, and, to be fed and to be able to take care of their children and then to provide access to education. So all of these interconnected uh, issues that uh, David's been talking about also are, um, you know, the root causes are there, but the, the reality of the humanitarian issue is that these people are trying to survive until they can have a chance to go forward in their lives and to provide for themselves. And so UNHCR is working to provide education assistance, helping the host countries as I was uh, speaking about earlier, to uh, provide education within the country uh, and just services to have access to food and to cash assistance to be able to pay for food uh, and to be able to pay for the rent for these places that they have to stay in that are very, very, you know, 
tough, very tough conditions. Everywhere I, I've, I've been, I've seen people living in uh, one room or two room dwellings, uh, with, a lot of times with no access to plumbing, women living alone who, uh, just to, to be a, a, a woman who's a refugee, living on your own is incredibly difficult and dangerous and let alone uh, what the children have to deal with. Uh, just to be able to go to the bathroom, if the bathroom's not in your own dwelling, is a, is a dangerous thing. So uh, I think it's providing help for the, uh, for the people who are living there in terms of uh, just access to basic needs, but then helping the host countries uh, uh, work with programs to allow refugees to be able to work within those countries. That's a lot of the work that UNHCR is doing uh, so that they can figure out systems so that these people can work and provide for themselves while they're waiting uh, to go home. Thank you very much. I'm out of time, but your point about the importance of the U.S. support for UNHCR is absolutely critical, right? Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Senator, Senator Sheen. Senator Romney. I want to thank both of you for uh, being here today and making the uh, the trip to uh, uh, to join us and appreciate the work that you're doing uh, to help alleviate human suffering. Um, uh, a question for each of you. Uh, Mr. Stiller, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm sure as you've gone to these various places in the world where refugees are located, that you note that there are some places that are doing a better job than others. There are some countries that are doing a better job than others in, in helping refugees. Uh, there are some organizations that are doing a better job in providing relief. And I wondered whether uh, UNHCR is actually, uh, or, or has actually put together a, if you will, almost a handbook or a guide as to these are the best things you can do to help refugees in your country. Is there an effort, if you will, in the, in the business world, it's called best practices, where you uh, lay out uh, the, the best practices of one enterprise to learn from it. Is that happening? And, and do you have a sense of the kinds of things you'd want to see in listing these are the best things you can do to help uh, refugees that come into your country? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I, I'm not aware if there is a specific handbook of that type or, or guide, but I refer you to my colleagues at UNHCR who could, I'm sure could uh, tell you about that. I mean, I think in terms of my experience, one of the, uh, besides the things we've been talking about, I think one of the most important uh, aspects of this is just how people relate to refugees in the world and how they um, experience them. And I think right now, my concern is that there is... Um, this politicization, there's this um, demonization in, uh, from some uh, places of what a refugee is, this, this cause for fear of refugees are dangerous. And the reality is it's the opposite. Refugees are fleeing danger. And all, and all of these people are not trying to come and invade our, our country or any other country. They're trying to come and just uh, live until they can go home. And resettlement with refugees, I think, is also a big uh, there's a misunderstanding about that of the, of the um, millions and millions of refugees. Only point, I think it's 0.4% are actually resettled in a third country. 0.4% <laughs> of all refugees. So uh, I think it was 56,000 worldwide last year. So uh, the reality is um, this small number are, 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 are the most vulnerable, as Senator Menendez was saying, uh, and, and Senator Rice were pointing out. These people are the ones who are the neediest who are, are going to a third country. Um, I think we can help by supporting organizations like UNHCR that are helping the host countries, and I think it's 85% of the refugees are going to these neighbor, neighboring countries, and these countries are, are overwhelmed. So I think that's a huge part of it, and I'd say just attitudes towards refugees, humanizing them, seeing them as people, and not something to be feared. 
Thank you. Um, Mr. Miliband, um, I think we were all drawn by the uh, comments of, of Senator Paul, um, who, uh, who I think correctly pointed out that, that civil war um, is one of the great causes of, uh, of humanitarian crisis throughout the world and refugees uh, being displaced from their homes. Um, uh, and he raised the prospect that perhaps we uh, should uh, just let these things run their course and not be involved uh, when an authoritarian uh, ruler decides to um, um, abuse their people. Of course, the challenge with that uh, idea is that uh, it would send a very clear message to uh, some of the world's worst actors that uh, the United States of America and other nations that value human rights are, are not going to come to your aid. Uh, and uh, it would make it uh, only open the door and create a green light for some of the world's worst actors to uh, pursue policies to uh, oppress their people. Um, that being said, I do wonder whether there are things that the West uh, or other nations could have done uh, throughout the process in Syria that, that would have alleviated human suffering to some degree. And, and I recognize that with conflict and war, there was going to be some human suffering, but the, the extent of it in Syria is just so overwhelming. And the humanitarian uh, crisis that's occurred is, is unthinkable. And, and for those that have not been in the region, uh, it's, it's hard to communicate through words. Um, is there, as you stand back and, and look at what happened in Syria or perhaps in other conflicts, are, are there lessons learned about what we could have done if not to prevent civil war? Uh, uh, are there things we could have done to have made the human suffering less intense and less extensive? Thanks very much, Senator. Can I first of all answer your first question? Please, because yes. I think your value for money point, your effectiveness point, is incredibly important. Because the truth is the humanitarian enterprise has to change. Historically, it was keep people alive until they go home. That might be months or a few years. And that was relatively straightforward. They were in refugee camps, you gave them health services, you fed them, and then they went home. But last year, less than 2% of the world's refugees went home. They're displaced for, on average, if they're in a camp, 17 years. And so we can't just say we have to help them survive. They have to have the means to thrive. And I would really commend to you, we do have a guide for what to do. It's called the International Rescue Committee Outcomes and Evidence Framework. It's online. I'd urge you to type into Google IRC Outcomes and Evidence Framework, and you can see what our field managers see. It's split down across five outcomes, because we think it's really important to be led by what are you trying to achieve. It then documents what's the evidence that we know from different humanitarian settings around the world about what works. And just in parenthesis, it's tragically difficult to raise money to fund evidence-making. We know in development contexts, stable settings, that there's been a revolution in the last 20 years, largely pioneered by the Gates Foundation, to really focus on what works. There have been only about 120 evidence studies ever in the humanitarian sector. We've done about 40 of them, and we've got another 18 on the go. But you can see, if you type in out IRC Outcomes and Evidence Framework, what we know, what our field managers know. And a couple of things come through very clearly. One, if you give refugees cash, you help them and you help the local population and you diffuse tension that some people have uh, referred to. And we can show you uh, how much of a difference it makes. Secondly, our services are always open to host populations as well as refugees. So you don't get Lebanese or Jordanians saying, well, hang on, why is there an employment program for them but not for me? Uh, ditto the same thing with uh, health services. Thirdly, half of the world's displaced people are kids. And I don't think it's wrong to talk geostrategically as well as morally about the utter short-sightedness of failing to educate generations of people who are in the midst of war, even if they're then living in stable settings. 
So Lebanon and Jordan, we don't have the quote-unquote excuse that it's a war zone so they can't get educated. The international community simply has not stepped up, and you will be shocked, I hope, that less than 2% of the global humanitarian budget goes on education, when half of the world's displaced people are children. So we've got huge work to do to make sure that the outcomes and the evidence are really the guide to practice. Sorry to go on about that. Have I got time to answer his next? Go ahead. Very briefly. It's a small subject, which is how do you stop war, so it won't take me very long. Yeah. The, uh, um, in a sentence. Can I in a sentence, I'd put one thing on the table. What's been missing throughout the Syria crisis and is the lesson of Afghanistan, it's the lesson of Iraq, is that if you aren't clear about the political settlement that will share power in a credible and legitimate way, then no development policy, no humanitarian policy, no military strategy can ever have a clear destination. And the sentence that hasn't been filled in, frankly, in the Syrian context, is there will be a transition from President Assad, but we've never completed the sentence, what's that a transition to? We know what it's a transition from, which is autocratic rule. It's never been clear what there's a transition to. And that's been the missing link, tragically, for the last eight years. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, both of you, for uh, being here uh, today. This has been very good. Um, uh, Mr. Milliban, uh, yesterday the State Department issued a statement expressing alarm over the escalation of um, violence in Idlib and northern Hama, and they cited specifically, or there ha have been reports citing more Russian and regime attacks on civilian infrastructure and humanitarian targets. Um, and, and, I, and I guess my my question to you surrounds what the tools are at our disposal to do something about this other than just raise alarm. Um, the two words that populate talk about the U.S. role in the region today seem to me uh, to be confusion and irrelevance. Confusion is obvious given the back and forth nature of this administration's policy on what kind of presence we will have there, but irrelevance is also an apt description given the fact that, um, as Senator Menendez mentioned, we have essentially been pushed out of the diplomatic process. Uh, Russia, Iran, and Turkey met again in Kazakhstan on April 25th, and once again the United States wasn't there. There's vague talk about conversations we continue to have with Turkey uh, about how to settle uh, their claims to the region in a way that doesn't spur more violence. But uh, my question to you is, um, how did the United States get pushed out of this diplomatic process, and is it too late for us to get ourselves back in, um, because it doesn't seem like we have many tools at our disposal other than complaint if the Russians, the Iranians, and the Turks uh, are, have committed to convene a process that will never, ever include the United States again, despite the equities that we have. Why have thousands of troops in Syria if somebody else is plotting the future of the country without us? Well, thanks for, for a very difficult uh, question. Um, I think that I would say, first of all, in some parts of the country, you have more equities than others, notably in the Northeast, and you don't want to give away those equities cheaply. Uh, secondly, uh, the, the Russians and uh, their friends know that they can't rebuild Syria alone. They're going to need the rest of the world to rebuild Syria, and that gives you leverage. Thirdly, uh, this country is blessed to have wide-ranging relationships with every other country in the world. 
And the question is whether where Syria fits on your docket for the issues that you want to raise with the Russians. And if it's not in the top three or the top five, then it will get consequently less uh, of a role. And you know as well, better than I do, the story of what happened uh, after 2015. Uh, the Russians entered the Syrian conflict in September uh, 2015. But until the US shows it matters to them, then obviously you're not going to be playing the kind of central role that could be a force for stability in Syria and in the wider region. Um, I don't disagree that the United States will have to play a major role in reconstruction. That's hard to see as this administration continues to draw down the funds available for it. But why on earth we've decided to sit out the conversations about um, uh, a ultimate political settlement when everyone acknowledges we will have to play some, at the very least, monetary roles beyond me. Uh, Mr. Miller, Ben, I wanted to also take advantage of the fact that you're before this committee as we are about to vote um, on an effort to override a presidential veto regarding an effort, a bipartisan effort here in Congress to pull the United States out of the disastrous uh, civil war in Yemen. I just came back from the region where I received maybe the most disturbing briefing I have ever received on Yemen in which uh, our humanitarian agencies there um, told me that there are 250,000 Yemenis today that are starving and are likely um, beyond saving, are beyond help. And there's another 10 million who are at risk of falling into that category. Um, the state of the economy is in shambles. The Saudis have made uh, all sorts of deliberate decisions not to do things that are perfectly within their control to prop it up. And what was maybe most interesting to me was when you lay down a map of where these quarter million are that are literally um, uh, weeks and months away from death by famine, um, they are distributed between the Houthi territory and the territory controlled by the coalition, a coalition of which the United States is part. And so this isn't just about the Houthis stopping aid from getting in. This is also about a decision um, by the coalition to allow for a campaign of starvation to exist in places that it controls. Do you share this bleak assessment of the situation on the ground in Yemen? Y yes, I do. We have about 800 International Rescue Committee staff on the ground in Yemen. I was in Yemen myself in uh, September. The malnutrition that you speak to is profound. And there are two critical variables that need to be affected. Uh, one is that the war strategy of the coalition has failed. Uh, 18,000 bombing raids have not, far from ending uh, the war, they have fueled uh, the uh, war, and they've radicalized the population and left Iran stronger, not uh, weaker. And so it's, it seems to me the leadership role that you've been playing has been outstanding and uh, has been bipartisan, has been very, very welcome. Secondly, you're absolutely right that the Houthis have also got responsibilities, and uh, we take our humanitarian opportunity to talk to all sides uh, and to press them, both directly and indirectly, uh, about their responsibilities in respect to the Stockholm uh, process, which the UN convened in January, and which has not been uh, followed through. And I think it's that twin track that's absolutely essential. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. What a great hearing. So I have a, a thank you. I have a, an observation for my committee leadership and a question for you. So the thank you is to both your organizations, the IRC and UNHCR. You guys do amazing work, and I've seen it there as well as in your testimony here, and we really appreciate it to the White Helmets. And I want to thank an American group, the Syrian American Medical Society, what SAMS has done to provide medical care. Our Syrian American physicians has been heroic, and I want to acknowledge them. Uh, a comment for leadership. 
is a frustration. We have a great bill, Senator Rich, your bill, the Caesar Syria Act, that I am a strong supporter of. That bill would have passed through the Senate unanimously, passed through the House unanimously. So we had the Caesar Syria uh, Civilian Protection Act, and it was bundled together with another completely bipartisan bill, the U.S. Jordan Defense Cooperation Act, and another completely bipartisan bill that I was a co-sponsor of, the U.S. Israel Security Assistance Act. And it was bundled together in Senate Bill 1. You mentioned that Senate Bill 1 is high-centered in the House. Let me explain why. These were three great bills that were completely bipartisan that would have passed nearly unanimously. A decision was made on the floor of the Senate to add a fourth bill, the Combating BDS Bill, that was highly controversial. And it was added because of a thought that it may split Democrats and Republicans for a political purpose. It was more important to make a political statement and divide people about BDS than to pass these bills that were unanimously, nearly unanimously supported here. We could have had a separate floor debate about the BDS bill, but instead it was put in the middle of bills that were completely bipartisan. This bill would have been, the, the, the Syrian bill that you sponsor that I strongly support would have been on the president's desk and would have been signed, but because the BDS provision was included, and the BDS provision gives state and local governments the ability to punish contractors who are peacefully supporting the BDS movement. It has been a, held unconstitutional in three different states most recently in the last two weeks in a case in the Fifth Circuit. And so, you know, I think it was John F. Kennedy who said, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Well, the partisan can be the enemy of the good, too. So often when we have things that we all agree on, instead of doing that, we throw like on a Jenga game or something, the one last piece on it that screws the whole thing up. And I hope that we'll have a chance to pass the Syria Caesar Act. And I hope we'll have a chance to pass the Israel and Jordan Cooperation Acts. And we should, when we can agree on some things that are really good, why muddy them up with things that are just, the, the, the stunt becomes more important than the, than the substance. And I find that frustrating. Let me ask, and, and I don't demean anybody's position on the BDS bill, but we could have had that as a separate debate and discussion and vote, and it wouldn't be complicating our support for Syrians. Let me ask you a question about this. You really queued up my question, and it's just one issue. 17 years was the phrase you mentioned. We, we, we can think about refugee status as if it's something temporary. We shouldn't think of it that way. In Deuteronomy, my father was a wandering Aramean who went into Egypt and sojourned there and grew into a nation great and powerful. I mean, refugees from the beginning of time have been with us. It's not an episodic emergency, but we often think about it as an emergency thing, so it's going to be tents and porta potties and water bottles when maybe we should be thinking about permanent structures and water treatment systems and, and building schools. Um, I have been with uh, Syrian refugees in camps in Adana. I've been, I've been with them in urban drop in centers in Ghazi and Tep, Turkey. Um, I've been with them in sort of urban settings in Beirut. If the normal lot of a refugee now is more like a 17 year lot than a two-month lot, what should we be doing as we're providing financial support, as we're working with our NGOs, to take account of that reality of refugees? Because it's a, it's a different model in terms of what to fund and what to support if you acknowledge that 17-year reality. Thanks very much. I think it's a, a great point. And just to add to the statistics, once you've been a refugee for five years, the average goes up to 21 years. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, the Syrian war has been going on for eight years. Most of the refugees have been refugees for at least five years. So it's, it's long-term. What's the answer? One, we need the humanitarian and development systems to work together rather than separately. 
We can cut the bureaucracy, but we can actually also improve the outcomes. And we need to drive the short-term interventions in such a way that they're actually linked to the longer-term interventions. Secondly, we've got to take education seriously because we're neglecting the next generation. That's an absolute no-brainer. That 50%, 2% yeah. is a really vivid, vivid yeah, Great. I, I'm glad that that registered. Thirdly, we've got to mobilize the international financial institutions in an even more activist way than we have so far. The World Bank, uh, the IMF, but also the regional banks as well. Because the truth is, we're not going to get the government of Jordan to extend rights to work to refugees while they've got 26% unemployment of their own population. And they've got a debt-to-GDP ratio of 94% of GDP, up from 55%. So we need to think strategically about the way in which the international system accords um, benefit to those countries that are delivering on this global public good. And it's got to be a shift of mindset from short-term band-aids to long-term strategic intervention. And if you can get the education right, get the employment right, get the macroeconomic support right, you can create conditions that this doesn't become a toxic fight of the host community against the refugees, but actually becomes something that, like in Uganda, has actually been managed well, has got people off aid, and actually created a benefit for both sides. Thank you. That's, we could talk about that for a long time. I appreciate Good. it, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I want to thank our witnesses for your commitment to this important issue. And I want to thank the representatives of the Syrian White Helmets for being here today. Your dedication and your personal sacrifices deserve our respect and our admiration uh, and our thanks. National security experts from both Democrat and Republican administrations have recognized the strategic benefits to the United States of robust refugee resettlement. Unfortunately, as other senators have mentioned, the Trump administration is dismantling the U.S. refugee admissions program. Last year, President Trump cut our refugee admissions ceiling to a record low 30,000 people, less than a third of the historical average of 95,000 admissions to the United States. And now, ha almost halfway through the year, only 12,000 refugees have been welcomed into the United States, including fewer than 300 Syrians. Mr. Miliband, I could not agree more with your <coughs> statement that the world's greatest superpower should not reject the world's most vulnerable in our greatest time of need. Uh, three weeks ago, I introduced the GRACE Act, which would prevent this administration from continuing its efforts to slash refugee admissions. This bill would prevent any U.S. president from settling in the annual refugee admissions level below 95,000 each year. We already have 12 senators who have co-sponsored it, and we're going to continue to build momentum on that. Um, Mr. Stiller, um, Mr. Miliband has spoken eloquently on the need for American leadership. Can you, can you give us your statement as to why you believe it's the role of the United States to play this role? I, yes, probably less eloquently, but I'll try. <laughs> um, I mean, I was, I was speaking about this a little bit earlier, but I, I feel uh, the U.S. has always been a, a beacon for welcoming refugees. We're a country of refugees. Um, and I, I think, as you were pointing out, as the U.S. goes, so goes the world. And uh, so this is a, a global issue, too. But um, the, the reality is that refugees are additive to our, our communities, to our economy. Um, they <coughs> literally contribute billions of dollars in tax money and revenue uh, to, to the economy. Uh, I think it's, um, there's a statistic 40% of all Fortune 500 companies are, 
were either started uh, by a refugee or immigrant or their children. I mean, it's, it's just part of the fabric of, of American life, and it's distressing to me uh, to see the numbers go down as they have because we, we have to lead the world in this. And the reality is that it's only, th these people are, are only the most vulnerable who are, are being admitted, and it's 0.4% of all refugees in the world. So uh, I think it's in very important for the U.S. to lead on this, and uh, we have the ability to, and it's been proven to actually help uh, our country. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Milvan, you, you've been the leader on this and on climate change. Uh, when I was made the chair in 2007 of the Select Committee on Climate Change over in the House, my first hearing, my first witness, in my first hearing was General Gordon Sullivan, four-star general, uh, in, in, commander of the Army. And he testified that when he looked back at the decision which he had made in Somalia, uh, which was in Mogadishu, which came to be known as Black Hawk Down, and he s sent in uh, personnel that he didn't fully understand why we were there. And now testifying before my committee, on behalf of 12 other four-star generals and admirals, he wanted to say that he now realizes, in retrospect, that it was a drought caused by climate change that had brought factions closer and closer together, fighting over limited resources, and that then the United States had to go in uh, in order to try to separate them or to provide aid to those who had been affected. Could you talk about that? Talk about Syria, too, and the effects of climate change and how you see that playing out, not just in Syria, but in other parts of the world, and what the responsibility of the United States has to lead on climate change as well. Thanks very much. I think that uh, the best way to understand this is that climate change increases resource stress, and resource stress is a conflict multiplier. Uh, there's a legitimate and credible line of argument that the drought in the northwest of Syria in 2008 to 11, which drove hundreds of thousands of people into the cities, was a contributor to the uh, revolt, although I always remind people that in 2005, the Damas Damascus Declaration sowed the seeds of the demand for accountable government uh, before that uh, drought, so it's a multi-factorial. Uh, but we know from our work around the world, the Lake Chad Basin being an obvious example, uh, where you've got northeast Nigeria, Chad, uh, Cameroon, Niger, uh, climate change is happening. It is causing resource stress. Resource stress does drive conflict, and when it's combined with corruption, misgovernance, uh, poverty, uh, religious, uh, dif religious and eth ethnic difference, you've got a tinderbox. And uh, the uh, truth is that we're going to be living with this for many decades uh, to come. And the danger is that we neither mitigate nor adapt ourselves to that situation. Thank you. Thank you both thank so you. much for your leadership. On this thank episode. you, Senator Martin. Well, thank you all for uh, uh, being here today. Senator uh, Mendez, I want to close up just briefly with a couple of remarks. Uh, Mr. Stiller, you undoubtedly were impressed meeting with the uh, King of Jordan and, and his uh, wife. Uh, oh, okay. They come and see us. Gosh, I'll bet it seems like quarterly, but it's probably just once every uh, six months. But uh, it's really unfortunate we don't have leaders like that all over the Middle East. We wouldn't have the, the, the kind of issues that we have. Um, they, uh, they, they do remarkable things, and particularly being hosts uh, uh, albeit involuntarily to the uh, refugees, uh, the, the thousands and thousands of refugees in their country. Mr. Miliband, I was a little 
disappointed, I guess, in a, whoever it was that made the remark to you about the, from Jordan saying, well, we kind of feel like we're on our own if the United States doesn't do X and Y. Uh, one of the great untold stories that most Americans have no idea is we are doing a tremendous amount there as, uh, compared to the rest of the world. I mean, we're the ones that are funding, uh, are, being, are providing the funds so that uh, Jordan can take care of those people uh, in those refugee camps. And it's a, it's a tremendous humanitarian crisis there. And it's our money that is, that is sustaining that. So they, the Jordanians are not alone. And I can tell you, uh, the king and the queen do not feel that they are alone in this. They are, they, every time they come to see us, they, they are very strong in their thanks to, to the uh, people of the United States of America for helping uh, in those refugee camps. So I don't know what the context of that conversation was you had with that uh, Jordanian person, but I can tell you that the king and queen, every time they come to see us, are not dragging their feet about, uh, about how important uh, the U.S. Uh, help is, has been, and, and will be. So with that, uh, uh, Senator uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, and I agree with you. The king and queen are, are, are very... Uh, appreciative of U.S. assistance, uh, driven to a large degree by the Congress, and also, uh, but uh, while they are so appreciative of our assistance, they have a bigger, huger uh, dynamic. And so it's the rest of the world community that needs to be engaged equally uh, as well. Uh, Mr. Stiller, uh, in your professional life, you bring us humor, you give us insights into our lives, you talk about, uh, through your medium, our humanity. And in this regard, uh, I was thinking about some of the stories that you told briefly in your visit most recently. Uh, can you share any insights in Lebanon, for example? It's my sense that Hezbollah and the Lebanese government are pressuring refugees to return back to Syria, 1.5 million. Um, did you gleam from your visits there uh, a sense of, you, you, you describe life as it is. Did you glean from your conversations how Syrian refugees see their future? Did you glean from your interactions a sense of what it would take for them to return? I, I'm pretty much of, of a view of why they don't return right now, but there are some who question why they don't return. Can, can you share any insights in that regard? Yeah, thank you for that. I um, I feel that almost uh, to a person, everyone I talked to there desperately wanted to return or wanted to return in a very real way. Um, whether or not the reality of that was possible was a, is a different question. Um, I met a woman in Tripoli who was living alone. I was talking about her earlier who her husband had gone back, decided to go back, uh, I, I think a year or a year and a half ago, and he disappeared. And she hasn't heard from him since, and she doesn't know what happened to him. And I think you know, that's indicative of the reality for these people is that they just don't know what they're going back to, and they have to make this very difficult decision on their own, and it's a very fluid situation. So uh, I think there's a, um, uh, they, they know that they have to make a life where they are, uh, but they also have a strong desire to go back. Um, you know, I, I find in the camps it's a little bit more uh, there's less hope sometimes because they're just in this this sort of limbo and they have no opportunity to do to to work at all. Um, I think uh, people living outside of the camps are trying to find work where they can, but again, they don't have the right to work most of the time. Uh, the children, I think, 
it's the biggest issue because the, those two young twins that I talked about in the beginning, they've lived outside of Syria their whole lives. They actually don't even remember Syria because they left when they were six months old. So uh, I was at a settlement where they, uh, a group does puppet shows for the, uh, for the kids that tell them about Syria and, and tell them about the places in Syria through uh, characters talking about it in a, in a way that, actually it's, it's towns that we hear about, Aleppo and Homs, that we hear about in, in a very negative way here in America. In this puppet show, they're talking about, talking about these places as these wonderful places where these kids will someday go back to. And the purpose of it is to educate these kids about their home country uh, so that when they someday go back, they will have a connection with it. And I think that's the concern. Um, I don't know if they, you know, what the reality is for a lot of these people, but I know that uh, they have a strong desire to go back. And, um, but, but the reality right now is that until it can be a safer place for them to go back, they, it's, it's hard to recommend, for anybody to recommend they go back. They have to make that decision on their own, which is really difficult. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, if, I, if I may, Mr. Chairman, if I just may finish up. Mr. Millibrand, one last question. Um, we have had uh, the violations of international law and humanitarian response uh, um, in Syria as we have never seen maybe uh, at any other time, certainly in modern history. Uh, do you, are you familiar with the Caesar uh, uh, Syria Civilian Protection Act? Would that strengthen our hand in holding accountable perpetrators of violence and, and violations of international law? Uh, thank you, Senator. And I, I know many of you, including the chairman, have shown great leadership in uh, leading on this uh, Caesar uh, Act. Uh, from our point of view, the fact that you've included a humanitarian carve-out to make sure that humanitarian effort is not uh, undermined by this is a really smart and uh, good development. Uh, we see this as a useful uh, intervention that could really make a difference if it is part of a wider strategy. Because uh, I, I think one of you said on its own it's not a silver bullet, but as part of a wider package of development, diplomatic, political engagement, it's got a real role uh, to play. And if I may, just having the floor, I, I want to associate myself very strongly with what you, Mr. Chairman, said about the role that the King and Queen of Jordan have played. Uh, the Queen uh, sits on our board of overseers, having been on our board of uh, directors. The context I was asked was one in which the number of refugees being resettled from Jordan um, has dropped from 19,000 three years ago to 3,900, then to just 52 coming to the United States. And it was in that particular context that uh, so many Jordanians feel that they are, quote unquote, on their own. And the king himself, uh, I thought, in a very telling and uh, honest way, said in a recent interview publicly, I'm sure he said the same to you privately, he said publicly, for the first time, we can't do it anymore. The dam is going to burst. And that really cuts to the core of both the moral issue that so many of you have raised, but also the geopolitical issue, because Jordan is such an important ally of the US, and there's both a moral reason to help the refugees, but also a geopolitical reason to help ensure that people who are trying, leaders who are doing, trying to do the right thing, have the international support to be able to do so. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thank you to both of you. Uh, votes have gone off, and uh, we're gonna have to go down and uh, cast our vote, but uh, this will conclude our hearing today. And I wanna thank both of you sincerely for taking the time out of your busy schedules to come here and, uh, and be with us. Um, we're going to keep the record open until the close of business on Friday. Uh, we, uh, questions can be submitted. We'd ask the witnesses uh, to respond to those as promptly as you can, if you, uh, if you will. 
And with that, uh, also I would like to note that we have had a request for written testimony to be entered into the record from David Lilly, the Executive Director of the Syrian American Medical uh, Society Foundation. That will be included in the record. Again, uh, thank you all for attending today. This hearing is adjourned.